Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by Senior Tech Watch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi. How excited are you about our second tranche of Look Back Equity content? I'm really excited. It's, we've got some interesting things we're going to talk about, and it just blows my mind still that we're at the end of 2023. Yes, a very, very long year that also went by very, very quickly, but it won't just be Marianne and myself. We are going to bring in two guests from the TechCrunch team to walk us through the particulars of some major news stories. So on the pod today, looking back at the year, we're talking about the SVB crash and the ensuing aftermath. Then crypto goes to court. What happened with the SBF trial? What's up with CZ? And where is crypto now? And then, of course, we'll wrap up with the unavoidable open AI saga, digging into the chaos at the leadership level of that particular concern and where we are again as the year comes to a close. But Marianne, let's spin the clock backwards to early in the year. Silicon Valley Bank decided to make a number of financial moves that I read about and I thought, hey, this is pretty interesting, but not a big deal. The rest of the world disagreed. And over the ensuing weekend, Silicon Valley Bank cracked and fell apart. So here is a clip from Equity at the time featuring our friend Natasha Moscarenas. Give it a listen. Shall we pick up Friday in which <laughs> everyone is, is losing their collective minds and then the government steps in? So pick us up there and give us a little bit of a into the weekend teaser. Yes, perfect. Yeah, to give you a sense, after that recording, we very much went head down trying to better understand how venture capitalists were advising portfolio companies on handling one of their biggest banking partners, SVB Banks, you know, over half of US banked venture startups. What are they doing next? And I feel like by Friday, we got some answers. One was the biggest news was that regulators officially stepped into SVB, wound down the bank and are taking over, which was, Alex, I mean, that was insane to read and write. I mean, earthquake. I, I mean, it's just so crazy. This time last week, Silicon Valley Bank was on paper, fully capitalized, operating no signs of issue. And then, you know, they make this financial announcement and then everyone realizes how much like issue there might be with their overall asset base. Yes. And then everyone panics. VCs yank. I think it was like a total of 42 billion flowed out of Silicon Valley Bank in a short period of time. Yeah, exactly. We started to see a lot of those big numbers flow around, which I think definitely added to the panic, even though those were the, the facts we could go to, which was more than 85% of SVB's deposits were not insured. And the bank, as of um, its last disclosure, was handling some $175 billion in customer accounts. So there was so much at stake. And then, you know, now we see startups heading into the weekend thinking about two things, payroll on Monday, and then contagion. Is this going to happen with other banks? And I feel like that's still the topic. Yeah. And so <laughs> the contagion part we'll get to in a second, but the payroll thing, uh, everyone was very scared that startups essentially would not be able to pay their employees this week, that they wouldn't be able to pay their cloud bills, and that they would essentially just, just die on the vine if they couldn't get access to their deposits. And everyone kind of expected that up to the $250,000 normal limit for FDIC deposit insurance would be covered. But past that, it wasn't clear. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that the FDIC deposit insurance fund had plenty of capital, uh, which I think everyone in the banking world has paid into. And so that's going to be used to solve the near-term issues. And the government announced on Sunday evening, if memory serves, it has been a crazy couple of days, <laughs> that depositors would be made whole and would also be liquid as of Monday morning, which I think, Natasha, dampened some of the chaos on Twitter. It, it lowered the cortisol and blood pressures of Silicon Valley in general. 
But that was hardly the end of things because we're still hearing about SVB subsidiaries being taken over in certain areas. And there's still a lot of fear, but it does seem, I'm going to just stick my nose out a little bit here, that the immediate crisis has been contained. And now the question is, is there a second crisis? So, Marianne, that does set the tone for where we were back in the day. Lots of time has passed. Many other things have happened. But I'm very curious, from a fintech perspective, what stands out to you in the aftermath and kind of where are we today? Yeah. So when all this went down in March, a number of fintech startups saw an opportunity, uh, of course, right, to come in and and help all these Silicon Valley bank customers that were panicking, not sure what to do with their money and trying to figure everything out. And the three that stood out, the three startups that stood out were Brex, Mercury, and Arc. And so right after, right after everything happened, I think all three of them saw a big bump in business. Right. And, you know, naturally, like, that makes sense. It's logical. Everyone's freaking out. They're moving their money. We have data from from all three. I can reference uh, some of that really quickly. Arc had told us like that first weekend that it saw its backlog of deposits more than double to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Brex said that in the first week after the shutdown alone, it opened 4,000 new accounts and received $2 billion in deposits, uh, which is quite a lot. Mercury, too, told us that the first first five days were nuts and that, let's see, in the first few days, they saw more than $2 billion in deposits and in all of March, nearly 8,700 new customers depositing funds into its accounts. Well, that was just in all of March. I talked to Mercury in July and they said that the collapse drove 26,000 customers to its services platform in four months. So that's a whole lot. But One thing that we're always wondering about is, okay, naturally we see a big bump, but were these companies able to sustain that kind of momentum? Wait, Marianne, before we get to that, I want to give people an analogy for what you just described. Imagine a house party of teenagers who are drinking and they don't want to get in trouble. The Silicon Valley bank crisis was like the police showing up, the people partying were the startups, and then everyone said, scramble, and everyone ran and went somewhere else. The other companies, aka Brex and Arc. And also, as a small other note, uh, Brex is, I think, the sponsor of this particular episode that has no bearing whatsoever on our editorial content. It just is an odd coincidence that we're talking about Brex uh, during the show and during the ad. Okay, Marianne, back to you. Yeah, so thank you for that, Alex. And, and great analogy. As always, your analogies are the best. Anyway, so I don't, I don't unfortunately have updated figures from all three of those companies as to how they're doing now, but I did get some data from Brex also coincidentally this morning that said that more than 80% of the 4,000 accounts they opened since Silicon Valley Bank started teetering in early March are still active. And then they're saying to date, the company now oversees around $7 billion in customer deposits. That's up from $4 billion before SVB's failure. And I did a little bit of math on that because I was thinking, holy crap, $7 billion in today's interest rate environment is a lot of money. At 5% per year, if Brex was collecting all the interest from $7 billion in deposits, it would be worth $350 million. Then I did some research and I went to the Brex website and I took a look. And it turns out if you put your money into their higher yield account, they pay out 4.94%. So I don't actually know the net interest margin that Brex might be wringing out of some of that cash, but I do expect that there's some margin there. So probably a nice chunk of revenue in Brex's pocket, similar to we've seen at other fintech companies benefiting from the change in interest rates. 
Indeed. I would say that, you know, all of this is still playing out, though. I think that it feels like such a long time ago that Silicon Valley Bank kind of melted down, but the ramifications of its you know, collapse are still playing out, I think. And, and actually, it's not a it's not a bad idea to check in maybe early next year with some of these other companies and say, how are things going? Yeah, I, I have one question, though. So clearly, a big diaspora of customers from SVB landed on many shores and drove some impressive growth for these companies. My question is, is do we think that the Brexes and the Arcs and the Mercuries are seeing the same sort of effect that we saw in e-commerce during the pandemic when demand was pulled forward, but then as time passed, kind of growth returned to the prior rate? Or do we think that this actually changed the landscape for growth at these companies and they're going to have better secular rates down the road? Yeah, that's a good question. It remains to be seen. I would say the difference between the, the e-commerce analogy and this is that, you know, people went back to more in-person shopping after pandemic restrictions lifted. In this case, we're not getting Silicon Valley back per se in the way, you know, the, the form or the, the, that it was in the past. So I think that they could still kind of capitalize on this if they play their cards right. But I don't think that the kind of growth, obviously, they saw in the in the very early days, in the aftermath of all of that, of course, it's not sustainable. It's going it, to, and we saw that with Brax already. I think there was a report in the information that third quarter was nearly flat in, in growth or something like that, revenue growth. So, I mean, there's a surge, there's a bump, and then there's kind of like a leveling out. A plateau, if you will. Right. Well, I just realized a very important fact. There's no way Brex goes public one year after the Silicon Valley bank crisis because their year-over-year comps would look like shit in terms of growth. So they'd probably have to wait for the next quarter. So Q3, I think? Okay, Q3 2024 Brex IPO. You heard the wrong news here first. (laughs) All right, now when we come back, we are gonna dig into the SBF trial, one of the most important events of the year, not just for crypto, but for technology in general. But first, my dear friends, a short break. All right, Marianne, I want to bring in Jacqueline Melanick from the TechCrunch Plus team, also the host of our Crypto Focus podcast and writer of our Crypto Focus newsletter, and currently the woman of the hour, not only because of her excellent coverage of the SBF trial in which she went every morning at something like 3 a.m. to a courthouse in, in New York, but also crypto is back. And so we're very glad that Jackie is still in the saddle. Jackie, hi, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you. What a nice introduction. I wish I could come on every week. <laughs> if you'll come on every week, I'll say something similar each time you show up. No, we want to have you on because we want to talk about one of the biggest events of 2023, something that you lived through very, very seriously. And I got to enjoy it vicariously through your text messages, which was the SBF trial. So if you don't mind, can you remind us where this began, how the trial went, and then the end of it in about 60 seconds? Oh, God, where it began would probably be in 2022 when FTX collapsed initially. And it kind of was a result of faulty balance sheets being released to the public, which we found out during the trial weren't even accurate balance sheets. They were basically modifying them for investors and other parties involved because it was all kind of inaccurate is the simplest way to put it. So essentially, FTX was not the burgeoning leader of digital commerce that we were told it was. It was, in fact, a house of cards mixed with fraud and then set on fire. Yeah, I think that's a a fair representation of it all. I think, you know, they did have real users. There was real traction. People did love using the platform, but they over 
estimated their actual funds they had opposed to what they genuinely had from trading revenues and things like that. And they used basically people who put their money onto the platform. They then kind of funneled that money into Alameda, which was their crypto sister trading firm that Sam Bankman fried also started. And it was kind of just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Marianne, I, what's your take there on the words kind of funneled? I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of euphemisms going on here. I guess now it's actually, it's been proven that it has been. So I shouldn't even be saying kind right. of. Yeah. Well, we had to hedge for so long. So I get it. Yes, I, I'm cautious. <laughs> right, right. Well, first off, you did an incredible job of reporting and covering that trial. You took us there with all those details and it was super impressive. Yeah. I mean, I would say that none of us were shocked by the the results of the outcome of the trial. And Sam Bankman-Free was found guilty on all seven counts. Mm -hmm. I think it was it was one of those situations where there couldn't have been any other outcome, really, right? I don't think anybody was expecting that he wouldn't be found guilty. Or am I just, maybe I was just being overly, I don't know if optimistic's the word, but would you agree with that? Or, or was there doubt while you were there in the in the courtroom and like talking to other reporters? Did you guys actually think that there was a chance he'd get away with all this? I think there was a slight chance that maybe not get away, but some of the charges he wouldn't be found guilty on solely because perhaps the jurors didn't understand the technicalities of the case. Mm -hmm. But the prosecutors mm -hmm. did make a good argument that basically Sam Bankman Freed made false promises and was the responsible for the loss of billions of dollars for thousands of FTX investors. And that's just something that they made understandable, even though it was a confusing topic. And not everyone understands crypto, sure. But I think at the end of the day, it was just about making sure jurors understood the baseline important facts. And the only reason we thought the chatters of, you know, the reporters or public viewers that maybe he would get away with this is that maybe they didn't fully believe that the prosecutors did their job of proving this burden. Well, turns out all that speculation was for naught <laughs> because the boy is going to jail. Now, Jackie, we all kind of recall the chaos and, and the brouhaha of what happened. And, and Sam clearly uh, mm -hmm. got the entire law book thrown in his face. And we'll figure out sentences later on. But what I'm curious about is in the wake of the trial and with the later legal action against CZ over at Binance from the DOJ, where does crypto stand now at the end of the year? I don't want to talk about the future. I'm just curious, where do we stand today? It's actually kind of crazy. And it's so indicative of like the crypto world that I cover 24 seven, but the crypto market and the overall ecosystem is like showing signs of positivity after this extremely long bear market. And after a year of so many crackdowns on the industry, like we saw this with SBF, we saw it with CZ, we've seen it with other major exchanges or just crypto companies in general, they're getting served notices or lawsuits by US government agencies. And yet everyone is still optimistic. Bitcoin is up 10% on the month. Ethereum is up 6% on the month. And the overall crypto market cap increased 10% on the month. So where we are today is honestly kind of a positive stance, even with everything going on. So summarizing this in kind of internet friendly terms here, uh, Gary Gensler is responsible for the crypto bump. Uh, declined to comment. I don't think everyone in the crypto industry would agree with that. And, and you know, I think Gary Gensler and any other U.S. agency that has cracked down on the industry has gotten like 
hot and cold love and hate from crypto people because they're so thankful that they come in and, you know, get the quote unquote bad actors out of the space. But then there are people who are like, you guys are being too harsh. So perhaps you could credit him to some of it. And then other people might say, no, they're making it too hard for crypto companies to operate in the U.S. I was being slightly facetious, but I more know. to the point, and, <laughs> and seriously, like it does seem like right. there has been a cleaning out of the crypto closet. You yes. know, we've done the spring and fall cleaning here. And is the crypto world now on firmer footing with, you know, certain exchanges having their house cleaned or, you know, taken off the market? Like, is it healthier today? Or are we just seeing another crypto price increase and in all that that entails disconnected from all the stuff we're talking about? I think it is healthier and we'll continue to see more of these bad actors shaken out. And even with SBF, he has a second trial scheduled for March. Uh, whether or not that will go through is TBD, but last I heard it's supposed to. And I think even though these bad actors are getting these lawsuits and it seems like, oh, we're on a better footing, whenever there's opportunity in any industry, whether it's crypto, fintech, traditional finance, people see it as an opportunity to do bad things and get ahead. So even if these people are kind of shaken out, I don't think this is ever going to be the end. Right. So essentially we may have gone after a couple of the, the bosses at the top of a but new one will, prime pyramid. will emerge, right? New ones will emerge. Okay. So it's kind of like whack-a-mole, but with crypto fraud. <laughs> I love that analogy. Yeah. Yes. That's another good analogy, Alex. All right. Uh, that's not as encouraging as I hoped, frankly. I was, I, I was hoping that this was going to be more fundamental, but okay. But Okay. Binance, right, enormous, now has new leadership and is going through a mm -hmm. settlement with the U.S. government. FTX, which was fraudulent to a material degree, is out. And we've seen so much detritus in the crypto space taken out mm -hmm. in the wake of the Terra Luna collapse and all that ensued after that. I mean, like, it feels like a lot of the major fraud that we either suspected or knew about has been clean. So the crypto mm -hmm. segment, even though you're saying like more people will come up, it does feel like at least it's been washed behind the ears and scrubbed some. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think that's a result of this current cycle. Every cycle brings about new actors, new initiatives, new quote unquote innovations like Terra Luna was considered an innovation when it happened and everyone praised it for the most part. And look what happened. It caused the downfall of a massive domino effect. And so I think when we enter a bull market, the next one, wherever that may be, some people are predicting next year, who knows? Um, I think that will also result in a similar thing where we'll see new projects, companies, et cetera, pop up. It'll get extreme hype. And then we might see the downfall again in a similar tune. I will say um, it was kind of interesting to watch the whole Binance CZ downfall play out because he seemed so, I don't know, kind of self-righteous when everything was going down with FTX, you know, like, oh, you know, you could tell he was being very uh, smug, but trying not to be. And then boom, all that hit later in the year and that, you know, he was trying to pull one over on authorities all came out. So I thought that was interesting. And then also there was Celsius. Wasn't that this year too that that was accused of fraud or am I mixing up? I, I'm getting my years confused uh, Celsius was last year when they filed for was bankruptcy and their founder, okay. Alex Mishinsky, is like going through federal court proceedings as well. But that has not fully been fledged out yet for sure. Right. But That's I think on the- alleged fraud. Alleged, yes. Thank you, Alex. But on the note of CZ, it's like, I completely agree with you, Marianne, that like he did have this like higher morality that he was presenting to the public and he constantly dismissed anything that came their way. Like earlier in the year, the CFTC and the SEC 
filed lawsuits against Binance and CZ and a few other parties. And they just kind of dismissed it as like, oh, this is just like fear and uncertainty. Like none of it's true. And they were just trying to like Mm -hmm. claim it as what they call FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt. (laughs) It's just like a way of dismissing anything bad that is presented in the crypto world. But honestly, CZ said in internal memos that they shared in the filing that they rather asked for forgiveness than permission. And they knew that they were profiting from the U.S. market without following U.S. laws. Yes. And yeah. they, and they're not asking for forgiveness and ha ha ha. Also, I just want to say <laughs> that if Marianne hadn't jumped in there, I had a really, really horribly tortured joke about algorithmic stable coins, good ideas, poor results. And then the cyber truck trying to go up a hill and failing. And it was going to work. It was coming together in my head. It was crystallizing. And then Marianne had a reasonable on topic point and ruined my horrible joke. It's like oh a mad lib. <laughs> it is kind of like, well, that's tech in 2023. It's a wonky mad lib that mm-hmm. makes you feel like you're on edibles. All right, Jackie, thank you so much. We appreciate you. We'll have you back on the show quite a lot next year. And of course, as I said, check out Chain Reaction, both the podcast and the newsletter. Now, turning to OpenAI, as promised, we are going to discuss the aftermath of all the craziness that went on. If you want to kind of go back to the blow by blow, we have tons of coverage of that, Marianne. But to help us understand where we are today and what we should think about that fiasco now that it's behind us, well, we've brought along Devin Coldaway from TechCrunch. He's been associated with the TechCrunch brand since 2007 and has also written for a, a lot of places, MSNBC, NBC, The Economist, lots of places. Devin, hi. First of all, how are you? Hey, not bad. It's uh, it's a beautiful, bad winter day here. Very nasty in Seattle. Well, When is it a nice day in Seattle? I mean, I've never seen one. Oh, all the time. Get out of here. So I don't want to go back through all the chaos. What I want to do is pick up from the end of the the chaotic saga. So Devin, from your perspective, where did OpenAI end up once everything kind of settled down? Well, it's ended up with Sam Altman back in charge, obviously. And basically, he got what he wanted. It's a very chaotic process. But if you look at what is now the sort of leadership there. Arguably, this all started with him trying to oust Helen Toner, who was on the board. Mm -hmm. And he tried and it didn't work out. And it led to some other stuff, which, you know, arguably caused this whole fracas. But now Helen is pretty much the only one who's out. Ilya Setskiver is still there. He's had a minimized role. He's no longer on the board. But Helen's out and Sam is resurgent. So I think that we're going to see a much more Altman-focused approach to leading the company. Yeah, I think that we talk about this as kind of the key person syndrome. I think, you know, he's been the face of OpenAI, especially since ChatGPT took off. So was it a surprise to you that this was the end result of all that drama? You know, I don't think anybody knew what was going on. We all considered it kind of well, I mean, it was all we were all very surprised, obviously, when they tried to kick him out. But the way that they phrased it, we were all like, yeah, maybe he was trying to pull something. I mean, Sam is an operator. And if he was, you know, trying to organize something behind the scenes or raising another fund or maybe investing in ways that he shouldn't have, you know, nobody was like, oh, he would never do that. Everybody was like, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. So what surprised us, I think, was how strongly he got the backup sort of structurally from Microsoft, Salesforce, other investors. It wasn't just that the employees got behind him. And they did, you know, and whether they did that because they love him so much or because they stood to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock options as part of that tender offer, you know, it's like, which 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 was it? One or the other? It could be both. Little column A, little column B. 
but everybody got behind him, including Microsoft, which now, although they still only have a, an observational board seat, they so strongly backed Sam that I think they will be backing him up in all his plays, all his strategic plays more than ever. And I think he's not just newly back in power. He is empowered beyond where he was before. What does this mean for other AI startups, though? I mean, are they seeing opportunity? That's really hard to say. I think that they may be seeing uh, death. With the GPT store, for instance, like that's going to kill a lot of startups because if you can get sort of a good enough version of like, oh, I trained it on this data, it's fine-tuned it like this, and it's a useful little tool. Like a lot of startups were building based on small ideas where they fine-tuned models and use the APIs. If OpenAI is doing that internally and you can buy it for a buck in the GPT store, mm-hmm. that I think is a it's a very dangerous prospect for a lot of small companies. Is that because what OpenAI announced with the GPT store might get a lot of things to like an 85% solution? And so it's probably a lot harder to sell a 90% solution for a lot more money? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I should say, probably shouldn't have said a hundred percent, but yes, 85%. <laughs> I, th- I think you're 90% true there. 90% correct. I think that that is the case. And I don't think it'll kill too many startups, but a lot of people are going to have to change their strategy because you, you simply can't come out here and say like, Hey, we've got a great idea. We're going to use OpenAI's API. And that's not a solution that's going to make you a billion dollars. You know what we should do though? We should have a company called open API that offers AI and then you can have both. <laughs> And it can, it won't be open either. It'll be, it'll cost a ton of money to use. Oh man. Okay. Um, in operational terms though, OpenAI did push back a couple of key launches in the wake of the fiasco. Do you think that there's going to be any long-term product hit to the company, given that it had to go through this intense breakup and get back together moment? No, I think that, I think that they, they delayed GPT store because they, they had a really aggressive timeline for that. It was going to launch, you know, it was announced in November, it was going to launch in December and they had this whole leadership, you know, destructive, chaotic moment that I think they need to recover from. And December was no longer a possibility. So, you know, January, February. But other stuff, I think we're probably actually going to see an acceleration and a moving up of timelines. As Sam says, you know what? Ship it. Let's put it out. There. Right. Let's mm-hmm. get let's take this moment and really like squeeze the squeeze the lime, get the juice out. <laughs> get stuff out the door. Squeeze that lime. Yeah, you know like, what, well, I mean. what, the, what the lime do? The lime's just hanging out. Hey, you got all that juice in it. <laughs> I, I'm curious what you think is the new landscape for leading AI model companies, foundation model companies, because certainly OpenAI's models are are well known, well liked, people use them. We've also seen Meta do a lot of work in the open source generative AI model space. Of course, there's Alphabet in the mix. There is Anthropic, and over in France, there's the Mistral AI. And so, you know, Devin. Are those companies empowered to compete more strongly with OpenAI now that they've had this crisis? Or am I trying to read too much into what worked out to be about a week of chaos and maybe won't change the actual trajectory of the market itself? Well, I think what we'll see is in 2024, there will be competition between the concepts of competing on the merits and competing with the market. And OpenAI is going to have the market strength. It's going to be the brand. It's going to have access via the GPT store to a lot of consumers and a lot of developers and that kind of access, even if, for example, Mistral, its models were 10, 20, 30 percent better than OpenAI's, like, can they access consumers? Can they access capital? Uh, that's going to be the question to me. It's not about just can open models compete? Yeah, they can compete on whether they're effective as, you know, GPT-4, you know, oh, it's 95 percent is good and it's it's cheaper to run. Let's use that. Is that actually going to happen, though? Because 
you know, you don't just use open source software all the time because it's cheaper. It's it has implementation costs and other things. So it'll it'll become a different kind of competition. And that, that remains to be seen in 2024. But that is going to evolve with the, the ship it movement under Altman. OK, one last question before we move on from from all of this. If OpenAI had imploded, right? Let's just say it had dissolved into nothing but its component parts and the Microsoft deal didn't work out and blah, 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 blah. How much more money would Alphabet be worth today? Man, <laughs> it's a it's such a funny question because they would, I think, if anything, they probably would have delayed their launch of uh, mm. whatever it was that we just saw, Bard and uh, Gemini, because it clearly, it wasn't ready. It still isn't ready. Mm-hmm. But with if OpenAI were to just sort of dissolve completely they would be like oh my god a breather anthropic too they would be like let's just relax and get it right for once mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and all that talent from opening i would have filtered over to the other companies at you know and gotten their big uh, their big salaries and it would have turned out it would have been a very interesting timeline i would say yeah, Marianne, one thing that I've noticed is whenever another company stands up and says, hey, we have all this cool AI stuff, pay attention to us. Alphabet had the fiasco with the the Gemini video that was essentially faked yeah. and then everyone found out afterwards and we're like, well, it turns out not as cool as we thought. And then there was the Amazon uh, generative AI Q bot that was not doing a good job even discussing internal AWS things. And it seems like a lot of people are trying to show off that they have reached OpenAI's level of sophistication only to fall kind of tragically short and embarrassingly so. Yeah. Yeah, they haven't and it's sad. Yeah, I think it's it's just clearly they're trying to keep up in this race, this competition and really need to be careful because it, that can backfire and actually make you look far worse than if you had just waited. Yeah, day late and, and a dollar short is better than uh, on time and $10 short. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice, nice paraphrase. This is why I shouldn't try to make up new business uh, sayings on the go. Anyways, Devin, thank you so much for your time. We have to call it a show there. Of course, we are Equity Pod on X and Threads, and we are back next week. So stay tuned for Equity's annual predictions episode and what one VC expects to see in 2024 and more to close out the year. Marianne, Devin, Jackie, thank you all so much. We're back soon. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.